Brooks, Dandrew Leyland. It was another end of an era in a show replete with era-ending moments. On February 8th, 1974, John Pertwee announced that he was leaving the role of Doctor Who after nearly five years in the part. At that point, Pertwee was the longest-serving actor to play the role, beating out the previous incumbents, William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton, by a good two years. Pertwee does not get the credit he deserves for his tenure, an era which saw the series scale new heights of popularity. From almost being cancelled in 1969, the Pertwee run secured the show's popularity in the hearts and minds of the viewing public, tripling the viewing figures and making Doctor Who an enduring part of the BBC's legendary 1970s Saturday night lineup. But time, and Time Lords, change. Pertwee was in a strange place as he entered his fifth and final series. For most of his time as the third incarnation of the Doctor, he'd been stranded on Earth, fighting homegrown menaces and invaders, and working from UNIT as a science advisor. The show had picked up a coterie of supporting players, who were well-liked by the audience. In addition to the Doctor and his assistant Joe Grant, played by the effervescent Katie Manning, there was Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, played by Nicholas Courtney, Sergeant Benton, played by John Levine, Captain Mike Yates, played by Richard Franklin, and they were all battling the villainy of the Master, played by Roger Delgado. However, in assisting the Time Lords defeat Rassilon in the 10th anniversary special, The Three Doctors, the Doctor had been rewarded with the ability to once again wander time and space, changing the tenor of the series. Other changes were also afoot. Katie Manning had elected to leave and Roger Delgado had been tragically killed in a motor accident. Pertwee was close with both performers, and Manning's departure and Delgado's death must have put Pertwee in a mind to consider his own future. Allegedly, he'd also asked the BBC for a pay rise to stay in the role, feeling, not unjustifiably, that he'd contributed to the success the programme had enjoyed in recent years. They turned him down flat. Whatever the real reason... Pertwee was to depart at the end of the 11th series. With Manning gone, the Doctor would be joined by a new companion, Sarah Jane Smith, played by Elizabeth Sladen, who would carry over to whomever this new Doctor would be. Also departing would be producer Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix, both of whom had steered the Pertwee era to great success. The BBC didn't let the grass grow under Pertwee's feet, as his successor was announced a mere one week after the story of Pertwee's departure broke. Don't let the TARDIS door hit you on the arse on the way out, John. Unlike Hartnell, Troughton and Pertwee, all of whom were reasonably well known prior to playing Doctor Who, the fourth Doctor would be a man currently working as a bricklayer. Out-of-work actor Tom Baker. Baker was announced to the world on February 15th, 1974. Baker was, on first blush, a curious choice. He'd only turned to acting after his career as a monk didn't work out, and had, at this point, appeared in numerous films and television shows, including the horror flick The Mutations and The Golden Voyage of Sinbad with Carolyn Monroe, as well as a few successful television shows such as Dixon of Dot Green and Zed Cars. But his appearances in those shows hadn't really set the world alight. But with his wide eyes, infectious grin and, and mop of curly hair, he couldn't have been more different to the previous man who'd played the part. 
Baker was famously not a fan of the show, and seemingly made no effort to study how the other men had played it. He simply came in and did his own thing. But what a decision that would turn out to be. Baker's own thing was to make the Doctor a counterculture student. He loathed authority in all its forms. He had no time for pompous paper pushers and was a freewheeling free spirit with a child's sense of wonder, a fierce intelligence and a complete inability to take bad guys seriously, openly mocking them at every opportunity. His apparent blundering hid a hawk-like mind. He was a well-read scholar and fan of jelly babies. This doctor was now unpredictable and truly alien just as likely to outwit you with a witty barb as to chuck a Molotov cocktail at you. And truly, Baker's clothes maketh man. To this day, when people picture Doctor Who, it's Baker's long brown coats, floppy fedora and unfeasibly long scarf that they bring to mind. Let's and Dick's elected to stay for one more story, to ease the transition between producer and new Doctor and allow the new producer, Philip Hinchcliffe, to shadow them to show how difficult a show as Doctor Who was to produce got made in the first place. Dix worked with new script editor Robert Holmes to work on Baker's first episode, a job Dix got by lying to Holmes's face that it was BBC policy for the outgoing script editor to write the first episode for the new script editor. You've got to admire Dix's moxie. Dix then chose to do something very, very smart. Or very, very easy, take your pick, with Baker's first script, especially as Baker hadn't been cast when he wrote it. He wrote a John Pertwee story that happened to star a different actor. This would ease the audience into the new guy, an audience that may only have ever known John Pertwee in the role, despite the three doctors erring only a few months earlier. The story Dix came up with was initially called The Giant Robot, but this was cut down to Robot for its final incarnation. And part one reprises the end of Pertwee's final story, Planet of the Spiders. And it's amazing how little play is given to the actual regeneration. There's no explosive special effects, no preparation via words of wisdom, no final speech... Pertwee lies down, Baker sits up. And that's it. The traditional approach of the Doctor being disorientated after the process is present and correct, but there's not even a lot of surprise on the part of the supporting cast. Sarah Jane simply announces he's changing. Sergeant Benton says, So, it happened again. And Lethbridge Stewart casually announces, I saw it happen this time. And that's all there is to it. A man physically changes form before their eyes and they treat it like they just went down to the corner shop and bought an ice cream. <laughs> All too jaded. A sense of continuity is established for the viewer, not only by the presence of the regular supporting cast of the past few years, but the Doctor referring to the events of past adventures, in this case the Time Warrior and Invasion of the Dinosaurs being name-checked. But Dix doesn't waste a lot of time on this. He gets immediately into the story. I've recently watched all of Baker's final season, season 18, on Blu-ray, and the approach to story there is a lot different to the approach to story here. 
In season 18, they have the Doctor and his companion meander around for almost the entire first episode of a story before getting into the adventure, while simultaneously having long, drawn-out scenes on the planet we are about to go to, introducing the guest cast, and these scenes rarely even feature the Doctor. Dix eschews that in favour of getting the story underway as quickly as possible. Barely four minutes in, and we've had the new Doctor spout gibberish, a scurry point-of-view shot of clawed hands, a few murders, and the stealing of top-secret plans, hilariously labelled Top Secret in large, friendly letters. Within seconds, the Brigadier has received intel on the robbery, told us what was stolen, the complete set of plans for a new disintegrator gun, and, through further expository dialogue, casually informed us about Think Tank, the frontiers of science research base from where the stolen plans were indeed stolen. Nowadays, we'd get an entire prequel story about who stole the plans and why. Here, though, Sarah Jane, as a journalist, is interested in Think Tank, and she just gets Lethbridge Stewart to wangle her a visitor's pass to this top-secret scientific facility. Again, brevity is the soul of wit, and this is all handled adroitly in but a few minutes. We learn that, despite their frequent fallings out, Stuart is missing the Doctor. This is why he's happy gabbing top-secret stuff to Sarah Jane. Sarah Jane is also worried about the Doctor, but not enough that she forgets to do her job. Dix and the actors convey all this decent characterisation in but a few moments of screen time. Although I don't know that the uptight and stuffy brigadier would like Sarah Jane referring to him as a swinger. Or maybe he would. I don't know. What he gets up to in his own time is his own business. In addition to the continuity references, the Doctor also takes a look at his new face in this clip. There you are. Come along, Doctor. You're supposed to be in the sick bay. Am I? Don't you mean the infirmary? No, I do not mean the infirmary. I mean the sick bay. You're not fit yet. Not fit? I'm the doctor. No, doctor. I'm the doctor, and I say that you're not fit. You may be a doctor, but I'm the doctor. The definite article, you might say. Look here, doctor. You're not fit. Not you... fit. Not fit. Of course I'm fit. All systems go. Heart speed? I say, I don't think that could be right. Both a bit fast, are they? Well, I don't. Still, must be patient. A new body is like a new house. Takes a little bit of time to settle in. As for the physiognomy, well, nothing's perfect. I have to take the rough with the smooth. Mind you, I think the nose is a definite improvement. As for the ears, well, I'm not too sure. Tell me, quite frankly, what do you say to the ears? Well, I really don't know. Well, I... of course you don't. Why should you? You're a busy man. Yeah. You don't want to stand here burbling about my ears, neither here nor there. I can't waste any more time. Things to do. Places to go. I'm a busy man too, you know. Thank you for the most interesting conversation. Must be on my way. There's absolutely no question of leaving, Doctor. Now you go back to the infirmary. I mean the sick bay. Get into bed and stay there until I say that you can get up. How can I prove my point? I feel I ought to warn you, Doctor, that there's grave danger of myocardial infarction, not to speak of pulmonary embolism. Yes, I should. I should. Mother. Mother. I feel sick. Send for the doctor. Quick, quick, quick. Mother. Dear, shall I die? Yes, my darling, by and by. One, two, three, four. This is a great scene. Baker's delight upon seeing the TARDIS is a wonderful, subtle touch, and he's matched by newcomer Harry Sullivan, played by Ian Martyr, whose face at seeing that the Doctor has two hearts is magnificently played. 
It culminates in the deceptively difficult skipping scene, where both actors time those skips with the dialogue to create a genuinely lovely moment. Of course, this being a new Doctor, he's under no obligation to stick around and sort out the problems of the previous Doctor, and it's up to Sarah Jane to convince him to stay. No easy task for this new, wandering incarnation of the character. But the Brigadier mentioning that the stealing of the weapon is odd captures the Doctor's interest. This first episode manages to ratchet up a decent amount of tension in such a short running time, but it also revels in some of the silliness Doctor Who is rightly famous for. Doctor the Fourth tries on numerous new outfits, including a Viking outfit, the King of Clubs from Alice in Wonderland, and a clown, before the long scarf we all know and love makes its appearance. Plus, the Doctor is always willing to get involved when there's a mystery to be solved, and he quickly heads to the scene of the crime to make some startling deductions. But two parts of the new weapon stolen, the Doctor surmises that the third part must be stolen soon. Meanwhile, Sarah Jane is conducting her interviews at Think Tank, and the show gets to play identity politics, with Sarah Jane mistaking Arnold Jellicoe, played by Alec Linstead, for the director of Think Tank, instead of Hilda Winters, played by Patricia Maynard. Points to Dix for this. It was a rarity at this time to see a woman in such a position of power. Dix is also playing with further ideas here. Radical feminism. It's a brave topic to cover in a Doctor Who, and could easily be seen as a commentary on Margaret Thatcher, who was, at this point, rising up the ranks of the Conservative Party. Sarah Jane's investigations lead her to Professor Kettlewell, played by Edward Burnham, a mad professor type straight out of 50s Superman comics, but no less entertaining for all that. Tom Baker is wonderful in his opening episode. If he has any nerves about taking over the series' lead role from a man who arguably saved the show from cancellation, he doesn't show it. His every line reading is joyous, filled to the brim with humour, sparkle, wit, and a large amount of irreverence. He's well met by the other cast, particularly Courtney and Sladen, both consummate professionals who seem incapable of delivering a bad performance. They are ably abetted by Marta, who plays the accident-prone Harry Sullivan with a world-weary acceptance. Dixie's script is also up to the task. He introduces the characters, the setup and threat with equal ease. The special effects of the robot when it encounters Sarah Jane for the climax are well realised. And if fans were worried about the new direction and actor, well, after 25 minutes of this, all fears are allayed. It's a delight. A great introduction to the new Doctor, a great introduction for Tom Baker, and a solid and entertaining episode of the show that not only embraces the nature of change, but also envelops the viewer in a cosy blanket. The cliffhanger sees Sarah Jane threatened by the giant robot, and if there's a complaint, it's that pretty much every cliffhanger for this serial is a variation on this theme. The big reveal of the robot is saved for part two, where our mechanical pal who's fun to be with is shown in all his glory. Obviously, this is 70s Doctor Who, and so the robot wobbles along on spindly legs, its head wobbling in an almost comical fashion. However, it's strangely affecting as well. The voice, provided by Michael Kilgariff, is almost plaintive and morose, a precursor to Marvin the Paranoid Android. But rather than being played for laughs, as in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it adds a layer of pathos to the story Dix is telling. The overall design of the robot is also effective. 
even if the outcome is sometimes not terribly well realised. Adding to the menace is the scene where Winters and Jellicoe command the robot to kill Sarah Jane. The duo are pegged as wrongans from the start. It's not really a subtle characterisation, but as they clearly don't care for Sarah Jane, this could all end badly for our intrepid reporter. Fortunately, the robot has Isaac Asimov's three directives for robotics programmed into its memory banks, primarily the inability to destroy human life. Credit also in this scene to director Christopher Barry, who keeps the lights low and the shadows long, meaning this doesn't look as overlit as many who of this era. It turns out that Winters and Jellicoe belong to the Scientific Reform Society, a fascist group advocating that society should be ruled by the elite who deserve their position of power, not through any claims of ability, but because their class gives them status. Class is an important part of any British fiction. As Sarah Jane mocks them for being a group of UFO enthusiasts and flat earthers, we see scenes of supposedly sane, intelligent and rational people rabble-rousing their audience at rallies to g up the populace. Tonight is the culmination of many years of work and planning. A brilliant and audacious scheme is about to come to its climax! You have all waited long and patiently during the years of scorn and ridicule, the days when we were laughed at as cranks. Well, now a new and better future is almost within our grasp. A future in which we, the elite, will rule as is our right. Now, you can probably hear from all this that Dix was a pretty straightforward writer. But he always had one eye on characterisation and one eye on plot development. He's also not afraid of shying away from ambiguity. Professor Kettlewell joins Winters and Jellicoe and the fascist organisation, but because he has honourable motives, protection of the environment. However, Dix isn't a subtle writer, but maybe that's for the best. The SRS are loud bastions of propaganda and moral outrage. Bad guys. We can never see people like this rise to positions of power in the real world. They're far too cartoony. Loud, cartoony buffoons can often be the most dangerous. Dix also isn't afraid to rip off other stories for who, but this isn't unique to this show. TV has been ripping off films and books for years. In this case, Dix minds King Kong, but it works. If anything, Robot is a tragedy. The tragedy of a creature who murders their own creator. It's long been said that to become a fully rounded individual, a child has to kill their parents. I mean, not literally, as the robot does here in killing Professor Kettlewell, but in the sense of putting them to one side to allow them to become their own person. The robot isn't capable of evolution. It is, as the Doctor says, a very intelligent idiot. By killing Kettlewell, the robot can't evolve, as humans do, so it seeks out the only other person to ever show it kindness, the surrogate mother, Sarah Jane. The robot also seeks to take on the sins of the father, following Kettlewell's programming of nuclear weapons to support the further ideology of the SRS. The robot is unaware of Kettlewell's change of heart, and as Sarah tries to convince it otherwise, the Doctor and the Brigadier must avert total nuclear destruction. You could get the idea from that last paragraph that this is all doom and gloom, but it isn't. 
As with all Who, there's a rich vein of humour running through the serial. And Dix could be a very funny writer. A few months ago, the superpowers, Russia, America and China, decided upon a plan to ensure peace. All three powers have hidden atomic missile sites. All three agreed to give details of those sites plus full operation instructions to another neutral country. In the event of trouble, that country could publish everyone's secrets and so cool things down. Well, naturally enough, the only country that could be trusted with such a role was Great Britain. Well, naturally. I mean, the rest were all foreigners. Well, exactly. Robot doesn't tend to rank highly in pools of great Doctor Who stories. But it's a solid meat-and-potato serial that has a job to do and does it with efficiency. I think I like Robot because it's about something. As with all good science fiction, the story is tackling a topic, in this case, that fascism and the people who think they have a right to rule because of their position and class are often the last people who should be in charge. Robot also looks pretty good, for the most part. Yes, its reach is greater than its grasp, and some of the special effects don't hold up. Yes, yes, the action man toy tank, but the location filming and lighting are all very good, and the characterisation is effective even if units sometimes come across as rather thuggish and good only for shooting things or blowing something up. It's also worth noting when talking about Doctor Who's special effects that in many ways Doctor Who was a vanguard of SFX in the 70s. It was using CSO, colour separated overlay, to extend sets long before CG was used for similar effects in Babylon 5 and now subsequently every movie ever made. It was using live in-camera effects, such as the robot being in the same shot as the actors and the actors being able to react to it, long before the volume, currently being used to great effect in The Mandalorian and to not-so-great effect in Kenobi. The effects in Who may look ropey now, but the production staff on Doctor Who were trying new techniques before anybody else. The BBC would often use Doctor Who as a guinea pig for these new special effects technologies that they would then go on to perfect and use in other, perhaps more prestigious projects. The reason this is as good as it is, though, is ultimately twofold. Elizabeth Sladen and Tom Baker. Sladen, having settled into the role of Sarah Jane, is marvellous here. A tenacious Lois Lane, out for a good story, but not at the expense of the human angle. Yes, the story is King Kong, but you believe it because of Sarah Jane's empathy and humanity. Elizabeth Sladen sells the tragedy of the robot. Baker, for his part, well, he's Tom Baker. In command, almost from the get-go. He's so watchable and captivating, owning the part from the moment he opens his eyes. Every single doctor worth their weight in jelly babies has made you forget about the previous incumbent within five minutes. Baker manages it in three. He's broody, philosophical, intelligent, childlike, and quite possibly as mad as a bag of cats. In short, he's the doctor. The episode concludes with the doctor cheering up Sarah Jane with an offer of further exploration and adventures. Would you like a chili, baby? I had to do it, you know. Yes, yes, I know. It was insane and it did terrible things, but at at first, it was so human. It was a wonderful creature, capable of great good. 
And great evil. Yes. I think you could say it was human. You know, what you need is a change. How about a little trip in a TARDIS? I'm just off. Wait, you can't just go. Why not? It's a free cosmos. The Brigadier. The Brigadier wants me to address the Cabinet, have lunch at Downing Street, dinner at the Palace, and write 17 reports in triplicate. Well, I won't do it. I won't, I won't, I won't. Why should I? Doctor, you're being childish. Well, of course I am. There's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. Are you coming? <laughs> Hello. Oh, what are you two up to now, eh? We're just going on a little trip. Uh, would you like a jelly, baby? Little trip? What, in that old police box? <clears throat> yes, as a matter of fact, in that old police box. <laughs> oh, come along now, Doctor. We're both reasonable men. And we both know that police boxes don't go careering around all over the place. Do we? Of course we do. The whole idea's absurd. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> you wouldn't like to step inside a moment, just to demonstrate that it is all an illusion. Well, if you think it'll do any good. Oh, yes, it'll make me feel a lot better. Doctor. In you go. Righto. Oh, I say. According to numerous sources, Robot was filmed simultaneously with Pertwee's final story, Planet of the Spiders, so as to keep the actors around and use the unit's standing set and the Doctor's laboratory. Planet of the Spiders started filming over April 2nd and 3rd, 1974, with the latter date being Tom Baker's first filmed appearance as the Doctor, with the shooting of the regeneration scene. Spiders continued filming over April 16th and 17th, April 30th and May the 1st, and Robot was put into production on April 28th through May the 2nd, as well as additional shooting on May the 5th and 6th, June the 1st and 2nd, and June 6th and 7th. It seems inconceivable nowadays that we're waiting over a year for episodes that have been filmed, but Planet of the Spiders' first episode erred on May the 4th, 1974. Robot would err on the 28th of December 1974. It would begin Tom Baker's seven-year run as the Doctor, a run thus far unsurpassed. He would define the role for years and overshadow all who came after him, at least until the show returned in 2005. For many, he was the Doctor. For quite a few of us, he still is. Where am I? The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? To cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. Alright, you want to do the prisoner? Alright then. The Village People. An exploration of the prison with Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lay. Okay, let's have a look at the email. Rob's emailed in, Rob McCarthy. Hey, Andy. Hey, Rob. 
There have been so many multiverse stories lately, largely because entertainment companies don't want to pay for new ideas. I've been thinking about the philosophical problems of such things, which boils down to nobody shocked by anything. In yesterday's Enterprise, they meet a dead person who is now a Romulan. Kablam! You just proved reincarnation. And what does the multiverse do to the whole idea of the Messiah? God so loved the world that he sacrificed his one begotten son in this universe. And nobody seems upset that Superman dated his Earth 2 cousin. Have a good Saturday. Did he date his Earth 2 cousin? Who was his Earth 2 cousin? Was that Power Girl? You know, I don't remember that at all. Is that a Bronze Age thing? I have no memory of that at all. I think the thing with multiverse more than anything, I don't know why it's in the zeitgeist at the minute. I don't know whether it's because people are thinking about different places we could have gone, different directions we could have gone, different paths we could have gone down at the moment for whatever reason. Maybe if, uh, you know, something that Ed Miliband had been able to eat a sandwich properly, we'd be in a completely different position now than what we're in. That one thing could change everything. And maybe that's why the multiverse is currently popular. I don't know. Everything Everywhere All at Once is a great film, though. So if you're going to explore the multiverse in that level of entertainment, with that level of entertainment value, sausage fingers, then um, I'm all for it. Give us more. Let's see where it takes us. Anyway, that's it. That's it for today. Uh, I'll be doing a couple of Doctor Who shows this time, this time, this year, as the show approaches its 60th anniversary and the return of David Tennant in the role of the Doctor before we get Shooty Gatwa taking over the keys to the TARDIS for a new run of episodes. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Who this year. Russell T. Davis is returning after successfully bringing the show back in 2005 and steering the show through two incarnations of the Doctor, Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant. He's been lured back by the promise of more money from a partnership deal with Disney+. Plus that they can pump into the show and make it look better and better than ever, as well as creating a Doctor Who franchise of spin-offs and other such projects. For my part, I'm not really sure what I think of this. Doctor Who has always been the little show that could, as I mentioned just now in my look at Robot. The special effects technology isn't great, the show's grasp always exceeded its reach but that was part of the charm of it i remember when i did the spearhead from space episode not that long ago i was agog at how beautiful that show looked all shot on film and on location and i marveled in the show that if only someone at the bbc had looked at that and gone why don't we film it all like this to the point that i i carried on watching some Pertwee episodes from his first season. I got to the next episode, The Ambassador's Death, and I'm watching it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm slightly bemoaning it. I said to my wife, look at it. It looks flat. The lighting's dull. The videotaping is 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 a bit boring. They've gone back to shooting it in the studios. They've got two days to film, and it looks rushed. It's like filming a stage play. Spearhead from Space looked like a film. This looks like... And I trailed off. I didn't quite know where I was going with it. And my wife said, it looks like Doctor Who. And she was right. The Ambassadors of Death looks like Doctor Who. Spearhead from Space is the anomaly. And then she said, but isn't that why you love it? Isn't that what you love about it? The threadbare nature of it. And that made me think that, yeah, I think 
as fans of the show, that has been our cross to bear for many, many years, that the show couldn't compete with Star Trek in the special effects department. It couldn't compete with Battlestar Galactica or the Six Million Dollar Man or those other grandiose, lush, expensive-looking American shows that were imported over. We couldn't compete with that. On We didn't have that budget. We didn't have that money. We didn't have that big studio behind us to be able to, to create that kind. But in every other respect, Doctor Who was a lot better than many of those shows. Man from Atlantis may have looked great, but it never did an episode as good as City of Death. And ultimately, that's what Who was. It's its ideas. And I'm, I'm finding myself a little bit uncomfortable at the idea that it's not... It's got Disney money behind it. As someone who finds Disney largely homogenous and uncreative in many aspects, certainly in regards to the franchises that they've bought, I'm I'm in a curious position. Now, I know this is not like for like. I know Disney doesn't own Doctor Who. The BBC still own Doctor Who. The Disney deal is, is a worldwide proposition where they will only get to stream the show across the rest of the world. The UK will still see it on BBC and on BBC iPlayer. But because of that, they are putting some money into it. And if they're putting some money into it, I can't see them not wanting a say in what goes into the content of it. And that's where it concerns me. Will it perhaps lose some of what made it special? Hmm. I don't know. We're just going to have to wait and see. I am excited for the upcoming specials, which, again, as I mentioned, see the return of David Tennant. I'm very excited to see what Shooty Gatwa does with the role, as I am when any new Doctor is announced. Let's see what they do with it. And as ever, you know, the same axiom applies, you know, with regards to the show and the spin-offs and everything else. If they're good, we'll enjoy them. And if they're not good, they won't be good. It's just as simple as that. They're either good or not good, as the opening of uh, Views from the Longbox used to have it. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. You can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you're of a mind to do so. I'm around like Superman. Uh, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on various Discord servers. If you want to pop by, say hi, do something else that rhymes, and hopefully... Hopefully it's all going to be okay. Take care, and I'll see you all again real soon.